Fagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Today's episode is a bit different. Normally, I interview well-known senior executives in the global insurance industry, often with long and distinguished track records and a public persona within our sector. But today, I'm talking to two people that I would expect only a few of the regular Voice of Insurance listeners to know. That's because they're here because I think what they've achieved to date is interesting and genuinely unique and deserves to be brought to wider attention. Keir Cox and Todd Davison of UKMGA Purbeck Insurance are pioneers in personal guarantee insurance. This is insurance looking to cover the personal guarantees that are often required by financial institutions of directors when lending to small businesses. When I first met Keir and Todd and heard what they were doing, I loved the idea. Firstly, that I knew of, no one else is doing this. And secondly, this idea goes to the core of what insurance does best. Directors running exciting small businesses are often put off seeking the finance they need to make their growth plans a reality because of these guarantees that are almost always backed by the equity in their homes. You've read too many biographies of successful entrepreneurs if you think everyone wants to take that kind of risk. Meanwhile, lenders might lend more if they knew an insurer was aligned with them and had done the additional diligence needed to become comfortable underwriting the risk. Here, it's insurance that is the big economic enabler, helping fast-growing, dynamic businesses get the finance they need to drive the economy forwards. I like it when we're the good guys. So listen on and prepare to be enlightened about a whole new class of business that I'm sure will be a standard product in decades to come. Just remember that you heard it here first from Keir and Todd. Enjoy the podcast. Todd and Keir, welcome to The Voice of Insurance. Hi, Mark. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Why don't you introduce yourselves a little bit and tell us sort of your journey into insurance. Most people don't get into insurance by choice. We all seem to fall into it one way or another. So how did you fall into insurance? Yeah, so I'm Todd Anderson, Managing Director here at Public Insurance. I've had an interesting sort of journey into insurance so far. Actually, it's my first foray into the insurance world in terms of Perbeck. By sort of background, I'm actually an accountant. So I've trained a big four firm in the Midlands. So working in predominantly financial services for a range of sort of banks, building societies, and quite interestingly, private practice pension funds as well. So whilst it's not the carbon copy of an insurance company and obviously all the regulation that sits around an insurance company, the mechanism of pension contributions and benefits versus insurance premiums and insurance claims and kind of the investment of that is kind of it's quite adjacent, yeah. isn't it? It's quite an adjacent yeah, thing. Yeah, so it's quite interesting in from kind of a sort of conceptual method. Piqued my interest a little bit in insurance. And also, the particular role that I had at the firm was working in corporate finance M&A. So mergers and acquisitions, helping small businesses to raise finance, dispose of certain subsidiaries or acquire both from the buy and sell side. So having a little bit of a background into commercial finance as well. It sounds like a good intro into how you came up with the idea for Perbeck. But Keir, what about you? Yeah, so Keir Cox, uh, Director of Operations here at Perbeck. My model into insurance very much follows kind of what you introduced with, really. I kind of uh, left university at the arse end of the recession. There's not really much going on anywhere. I just happened to fall into a brokerage. So I started at A-Plan Insurance back in about, I think it was 2013, 14 right at the sort of the bottom rung of the ladder. So dealing with the delights of midterm adjustments, premium finance defaults and all that fun stuff. 
then yeah, slowly sort of progressed on up. I always wanted to work in commercial insurance once I started in there. And after about 18 months, I found myself kind of in the commercial department. And and, and yeah, that's kind of really where it began. So came sort of qualified. So got sort of my Chartered Institute of Insurance qualification. And yeah, decided to like it. My, my dad had always had a background in insurance as well. So some could say it sort of lent its way in the family. But for me, it was, it was purely by chance really that I fell into it. So any non-UK listeners, A-Plan is one of the last sort of high street, main street insurance brokers, and now actually part of the Howden Group. I think it's actually going to brand as Howden itself. And I've got one on my high street in my suburb of London, where I live as well. So it'd be interesting to see the word Howden actually so as, I, as it got up the high street. <laughs> so how did you come up with this idea then? So you've had a career. And obviously, when you say that recession, presumably that was the one after the global financial crisis, Q. I'm old enough to have seen so many recessions you see now. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah it, was, it was certainly that one. So, I mean, the choices were either kind of stay in Manchester where I went to uni or moved down to London. I didn't really fancy either or. So headed back to the Midlands and there was just nothing going. I took a job on a bar for a bit because I thought, well, I've spent three years on the other side of the bar. Let's work that side <laughs> of the bar and try and figure out life a little bit. And yeah, just happened to sort of chance into it as a, as a first professional job, really. So when did Perbeck start to form itself as an idea in your mind? It's actually the brainchild of Dean Cox and Neil Wadsworth. So they were the two sort of individuals that had an awareness of sort of the concept, had a bit of a legacy dealing with insolvency, business advice, insurance as well. Dean's kid's father. Right. So actually what they did was they commissioned a report from a local lawyer that they knew quite well, just looking at the concepts of personal guarantees. One around the sentiment of when an SME is faced with a personal guarantee, what impact does that have on them, you know, taking out business finance, pursuing growth opportunities, for example, but also from an insurer standpoint in terms of if we're able to select the right risks and the right lender counterparty, you know, a lender that's very diligent in how they write a loan and also the security that that lender takes. So if they've got, you know, a charge of the venture, then in the event that the business becomes delinquent, enters an insolvency procedure, actually the lender's potentially quite protected, as is that personal guarantee because they get a preference within that insolvency procedure. So that was really where the concept came in, Dean and Neil. I mean, this was dating back to probably about 2015. So really what then we did was try to develop that essentially. So looking at, okay, that's the concept. How do we build a policy around that? How do we price a potential product? And looking at the UK insolvency statistics, looking at different verticals for the age of the business, the sector of the business, you know, to try and come up with some sort of rating profile for potential losses that may incur on the products. And built within that as well, obviously, things like risk acceptance. So what does the sales journey look like? What are the key underwriting principles of it? Are there any complete no-goes or anything that we've seen in the data? And and that was probably one of the most challenging things, I think, because there was very limited underwriting data. It's really trying to get the proxy for all the data points to try and develop something very well-rounded and well-considered. So, How long does that take you, Todd? So that process from 2015 to launch, when we actually launched Powerback, was June 2017. So probably the best part of two years. Initially, I was still working at the accountancy practice, which ultimately I left May 2016, because it was one of those things where it was a bit of an inflection point where kind of either we'll leave it as a, a bit of a pipe dream or we actually commit to it and you know actually really dedicate time to try and get it off the ground. I mean, initially, again, just a bit of background, we looked at setting up a captive, a PCC, 
yep. to benefit from some of the, you know, the insurance profitability, the underwriting account, et cetera. So we believed in it. And that's when we approached insurers about becoming a potential reinsurance partner for the captive. And actually, I think they like the product, they like the concept. And that's effectively when the cover holder arrangement, the MGA position came about. Essentially said, well, why don't you just use our paper, write on our paper? You know, and that's essentially how it's been ever since when we launched that back in June 2017. So this is all about personal guarantee. These are directors, entrepreneurs looking for finance, usually because either they want to start a business or expand a business, and then you're stepping in there. So run us through how the product works. And obviously, this is one of those parts of insurance where it actually has that positive multiplier effect, doesn't it? You're actually allowing people to do business that they probably wouldn't be able to do, or they'll be able to do more or expand quicker than they would have otherwise been able to expand because of those, presumably they wouldn't be able to lend as much if there wasn't the insurance there. Run us through how the product works. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's true. I mean, the, the objective of the policy was to basically promote SME confidence. You know, obviously, PGs are a, a sensitive subject for any director. You know, you start a limited company to keep commercial and, and By the way, and obviously, PG is personal guarantee. Yeah. You're let off the hook. You can say PG from now on. Now that <laughs> yeah, okay. What it is. And then, obviously, SMEs are small and medium-sized enterprises and small, medium-sized businesses. So essentially the, the core product variation at least has two strains. So there's the secured finance cover model. So when we say secured, we mean either sort of asset backed, so against commercial assets. So it could be commercial mortgage, heavy plant and machinery, so asset finance, uh, invoice finance, for example. So finance that's sort of leveraged against a, a debtor book, so a book of invoices owed to a company. And then the unsecured side of finance, which is lent primarily on the merits of the balance sheet, but essentially, so for secured finance, there'd be security over the assets in addition to the personal guarantee. And often these personal guarantees can be limited as a result of usually the commercial asset is the main route of recovery for the lender, you know, the PG. So the, the personal guarantee of the director comes in after those assets have been exhausted. It should usually be the yeah. case, yeah. Once they've been liquidated and offset against the balance, the lender will look to pursue and it could be a limited liability or it could be uncapped. Obviously, for unsecured lending, a lot riskier because the PG or the personal guarantee usually acts as the sole security. So for those types of guarantees, the lenders are typically a little bit more aggressive in their recovery because it's their only route of recovery. You know, nine times out of 10, unsecured creditors fall at the bottom of the pile. Everybody receives an equal dividend of whatever's left over, which often isn't very much at all. So yeah, obviously, they tend to present a, a greater risk. So starting obviously with the secure cover model, so we can consider cover up to 400,000. So that's our current insured limit for secured debt. If it's first charge, so first charge debenture secured debt or secured against a specific hard asset that we feel offers enough to mitigate the PG risk, then we cover 80% of the liability from day one. So that 400,000 cover position we provide a net cover position of 320,000. If it's floating charge debt, we might offer a secured rate, but 60% cover day one, be 70% cover year two, 80% cover year three. So the policy is essentially 12 month renewable. Unsecured debt, that follows the same model as floating charge secured debt. So 60% cover year one, 70% cover year two, and then 80% cover year three. Insured limits are slightly lower on unsecured debt just because it's a bit riskier. So the max we can consider at the moment is 300,000. The policy incorporates a few different features. Obviously, the core feature of the product is the fact you're protecting the personal assets the directors put at risk by signing the personal guarantee if the company enters a formal insolvency process. So it's a company's inability to repay the debt, which brings about a position where the directors, as the guarantors for the loan, then become personally responsible. 
We provide a front-end proactive support service to try and avoid a position in which the companies have to enter an insolvency process. So most of our claims begin with what we call a notification of difficulty. So it could be material bad debt, legal issue, loss of a key customer or supplier. Obviously, you know, COVID, we had an absolute influx of people just thinking this was Armageddon meltdown time, not really knowing what was going on. So yeah, we provide a front-end support service. So internally, we advise our clients and try to steer them. Again, that comes back through Dean, one of our founding fathers who had a lot of background in supporting sort of distressed businesses over sort of 20, 25 years worth of work. So he's, he's usually got a wealth of knowledge to draw upon. We do also have an external network of support professionals as well. So people within finance, cash flow specialisms, insolvency litigation, that type of thing as well. So if we know someone from our network that's worth an introduction, we'll look to arrange an intro. Best case scenario, we can help client trade through an issue because that's naturally beneficial for us as well as for the clients. Ultimately, if the guarantee gets called in, another feature of the cover is the debt negotiation service. So we provide an additional £1,000 cover to negotiate the guarantee directly with the lender on the client's behalf. Uh, it's a good feature of the cover for both us and the client again, because typically we save our clients probably between 20 and 30% through the debt negotiations compared to the lender's initial demands. And then once we've reached the final settlement, we then pay the lender direct the percentage be it 60, 70 or 80% up to essentially 60, 70 or 80% of their sum insured, their insured defined limits. So yeah, that's basically in a nutshell how it works. So there you're protected by this full contract of either 40, 30 or 20%. Is that always going to be the case? Does that put people off buying the product? Obviously, it's, it's there to protect you from any kind of moral hazard, isn't it, I presume? Sorry to interrupt the podcast. I'm here to tell you that Aventum Group is a debt-free, owner-managed specialty insurance group headquartered in London. Through our MGA platform, Rockstone, and broking platform, Concilium, the group controls circa $1.5 billion in gross-ridden premiums across 16 global offices. The group is employee-owned, has no private equity backing, and is very much in control of its own destiny. Synergy is Aventum's partnership model, a platform for entrepreneurial brokers and underwriters to become shareholders in their own subsidiary, a platform that liberates trading teams from bureaucracy and admin and allows them to focus on developing and servicing clients. We believe the traditional employee-employer hierarchy is outdated which is why our Synergy model is built upon trust and partnership and why all our Synergy arrangements involve real equity ownership from day one, very different to the management incentive plans or MIPS that are now so common in our market. We are not a corporate organization and instead pride ourselves on the entrepreneurialism of our team and ability to have fun along the way. Our view is if you want to build something to call your own, have the lead on how you do it, and create some meaningful value along the way, a Synergy partnership will give you an unrivaled route forward. For more information, please contact us at voi at eventumgroup.com today. We were keen, like say, it's moral hazard really, to make sure that obviously the policy wasn't going to make sure that directors were taking risks that they wouldn't ordinarily take had they not been covered. So it was kind of deemed that those covered percentages would be appropriate to ensure a maintenance of proper conduct. It can sometimes be a little bit of a sticking point, particularly if you've got an unsecured debt where your exposure might be 300,000, they'd be covering 180, 120. It can be a bit, a little bit of a sensitive subject, but usually by the time we've educated the directors on, you know, the support services and also that debt negotiation service to try and limit the impact a little bit becomes quite attractive. It's quite a delicate balance to strike the right level, Mark, because you know, we want to provide value in the policy by way of meaningful risk transfer, but equally in a way we want to do that in a way that's not going to be 
counterproductive to, you know, the director's still been incentivized to work in the best interest of business, et cetera, as well. So that was one of the kind of the key things. When we launched in June 2017, that first 12 months was very much a new concept, you know, wants to treat that as a bit of a sandbox period. So look at, you know, how the policy works, how it responds, what the pricing looks like, what the coverage model looks like. And, and actually that contribution was one of the things that we tweaked on the first one year anniversary of training to essentially relaunch the product building in all the feedback that we'd obtained from customers, insurers, other market practitioners as well, to really come up with a required product that was informed based on the demands of the customer and making sure that we are assessing risk appropriately and the policy working in the way. So that coverage model has always been one that we wanted to make sure it's right. And that's really been fed by that 12 months sandbox period where we kind of tested that with the product to make sure that it's sat right. And, and it feels, you know, with the feedback that the team are getting, that actually it's not a big prohibitor to the sale. And, and a lot of the time they do understand that there's still majority risk transfer that's taking place. Just have it really clear, the product triggers when an insolvency event begins. That's when you're absolutely triggering. But obviously you've got this pre, pre-claim yeah. part, which is part of the service, all including the premium, I presume. That's right, yeah. So to an extent, obviously the internal side of things, so the support that we provide as part of a team is, is purely included. Naturally, if they're engaging with you know an insolvency practitioner that we've introduced, there will ultimately be a cost as there would have been if they'd approached them independently. Yeah. Uh, but we do have agreements in place with our preferred partners for like, you know, control costs and that type of thing as well to sort of assist the process. But naturally, our claims processes tend to have a very, you know, quite a long tail to them in the sense that it could start with something like a material bad debt. It could take 6, 12, 18 months for that to materialize into an insolvency event and then even then obviously if assets are being realized to offset against debt as well it can sometimes take quite a long time before the actual claims payment is made so when you're underwriting this product what are you looking at i presume the director themselves pretty important they've got to check out personally one presumes as being fit and proper people that kind of thing but presumes also it's, it's the sector and how long the business has been trading that kind of thing are those are your core criteria yeah, exactly right. And obviously the, the event is the, the insolvency. So the bulk of the underwriting is determined on how likely is that company to fail. Also in the wider context of what else we take into account. So we look at things like credit score position. We look at sort of balance sheet trends, profit and loss performance as well. We also look at prior director conduct. So, you know, if they've been involved with multiple string of bad insolvencies, then obviously, you know, less inclined. Interestingly, if you know, if you have a director, you know, probably the key demographic for policyholders to date has probably been maybe a director in his 50s. He's looking to have that final growth push to maximize the value of his business to either ensure the best sale when he comes to retire. And obviously, he's not willing to put at risk his house. By that stage of life, they've got decent equity in their house, one would hope. Exactly. And obviously, you know, less time to recover if things don't quite go to plan either. So yeah, you know, that's the demographic. And they might have had one previous insolvency in the past as well, which we don't tend to frown upon, you know, if it's clear that they've learned the lesson. And we look at everything subjective with us. There's not blanket rules. It's case by case underwriting. And, you know, if a director's had an insolvency and kind of clearly learned the lesson, we look from there. But uh, yeah, we look into that. And it's kind of primarily, I'll probably say, 85, 90% focused on the company's sort of financial performance, also taking into account the wider context of, you know, if we've got a mortgage proposition leverage at 70% loan to value, even if the company is maybe on slightly less stable financial footing than we'd ideally perhaps like, we know for a fact, well, they've got 30% equity in the building. The chances of a call on the PG in that scenario are quite slim if it does go to an event. So yeah, it's, it's kind of a wider thing. We take into account the security of the finance, primarily the performance of the business financially, and then also to a limited extent, direct to conduct as well. 
The other thing is, you know, all, all applications that come through, they speak to an underwriter. So Kieran and the team will talk to everyone that applies. And, you know, over the years, as you know, as we've learned about the products and the motivations for buying the product, there is an argument to say that someone looking for the product may already have a trading issue potentially, and they're looking for something as an 11th hour policy to save them. And obviously, you know, we go through our process to minimize that risk. But, you know, one of the other key underwriting tools that we have is that the intuition on talking to customers, understanding their motivations as well, which can't always put a check sheet against that. And, you know, that's learned. And also because we handle claims as well on behalf of insurers, and there's obviously that feedback from claims experience as well to sort of feed into the underwriting methodologies and, you know, hot topics that we're seeing broadly in the market, but also um, where we've had loss incidents, you know, we can feed that back in to see whether they are things that are potentially systemic or whether it's isolated that we can perhaps filter out as part of that initial assessment. We're always learning, particularly from claims and what went wrong. It's really, really interesting. Obviously, yeah, and yeah, obviously you're bound to have people who sort of uh, want to insure their house once they already know it's on fire. I think, yes, as always, uh, that's the kind of moral hazard you really do want to get rid of before we take something like this on. I'm really interested in asking about distribution. You know, you're a small business and you can have the best product in the world, but the hardest thing is to get people to buy it because, you know, you haven't necessarily got the kind of marketing budget that a big personal lines insurer has got, you know, sort of plastering our television screens with their adverts and logos and meerkats and goodness knows what else. How does that work? I'm just presuming that it would be through the lender itself often. Is that right? And how do you go to market? How do you get in front of these directors? So we have a sort of a dual distribution approach. And you're right. One of the biggest challenges for our businesses is the awareness of the product and also how it works so that when people are interested, they're informed about making sure they've got the information they need to make that decision. But in terms of the distribution, predominantly most of it comes direct. So, you know, we have digital marketing agency, we have a PR agency. So the marketing agency is trying to optimize us online for SEO, PC, for example. Can you just unpick those? Sorry, yeah. So search engine optimization. So personal guarantee insurance to make sure we're ranking number one and also all the related key longer tail keyword searches as well. If people are looking for it, they're finding us. And then the PPC pay-per-click. So again, the bit that appears often above the kind of the organic positions where you get paid ads. So if someone clicks that, there's a cost to us for clicking that. But again, the digital marketing agency, they will look to optimize that to make sure that we are putting budget into the right keywords, the right timing to advertise for that as well. I guess the challenge with that though is that because there's not necessarily a broad awareness of personal guarantee insurance, there's always a finite number of people yeah. looking for the products from that. Because you can't look for it. If you don't know it exists yet, you, you wouldn't look for it. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So what we have is a PR firm, PR agency that we've had retained since 2019. So again, they are looking to try and push related content or viewpoints, thought pieces out into the relevant media to grow our broader awareness. And that's really targeting directors, but also potential introducers as well. So the majority of what we see, about 65% of the leads, they come direct to us. So it's the directs themselves. And then the balance of the 35% is combination of introducers. So typically commercial finance brokers, insurance brokers, accountants, to a lesser extent, solicitors. So just all those people giving those key services to those businesses. Yeah. And also during the course of raising business finance, each of those different types of introducers might have a touch point during that process. So 
commercial finance brokers perhaps looking to find the appropriate lender for the business. You might have an accountant that do some secretarial work for that business or has prepared financial projections to support a loan application. A solicitor may be involved if there's independent legal advice that's been required on the person guarantee, or if it's a corporate transaction, a sale, and there's a sale and purchase agreement, it's part of that process. And obviously, you know, the insurance broker is there to sort of look at all the risks to the business and the director to try and come up with these products. So predominantly it's direct, but also we are building our introduce a kind of a distribution base, but that's really started from zero. So again, that's going to take time to continue to build that up. What about that relationship with the financial institution? Because I would have assumed that they'd be your biggest introducer, but how does that work? Is it almost more adversarial? Is it, is it probably better that you're not associated with the financial institution? But of course, once they're aware that there is personal guarantee insurance, presumably, does that give them more comfort or less comfort? Maybe some lender would say, wow, I love the fact that there's the PGI there because then I might be able to lend a bit more, for example. How does it work? We do have a small number of lenders that are introducing for us, but it's very much incidental to their cooperation. They're not looking to really drive a revenue from it. Perhaps their main incentive is if there is a personal guarantee that's on the table, which potentially interrupts the deal flow or creates that friction where the deal falls over. You know, it's a useful tool for them to be able to help leverage to get them over the line. In terms of a kind of a lender-derived product, we have explored that in the past. I think the challenge is trying to find the appropriate lending counterparty to partner with, you know, in terms of a master policy basis or one where there's some form of even delegation around the risk acceptance on that basis. And, And obviously it's quite an involved process to go down that route. It's an area that we see significant growth because if we can tap into that point of sale, you know, where the personal guarantees are being requested, that could be quite interesting. But I think there's quite a few hurdles for us to overcome around you know, the regulation of that data protection, making sure that things are packaged up and that the sales process is very clear so that we are, and also the lenders not getting pulled into um, potential you know, regulatory issues. And also that we are, as you alluded to, Mark, the lender is not using it to change their approach to risk acceptance and their credit risk appetite, which then could potentially be detrimental for both the directors if they're getting loans they normally shouldn't be because of the policy, but also you know insurers as well if we are mm. accepting risks that otherwise shouldn't have been accepted. So it's the red flag of greybeard insurers that say, well, hang on a minute, whenever we're dealing with banks and we're taking the risk that the bank doesn't want, then we usually need our head examining and things usually end up badly. <laughs> but that's not necessarily <laughs> fair, but it's a, it's one of those classic things that something you know, anyone over 50 in insurance will tell you, you know, always look twice. If the bank doesn't want that risk, why do we want it? Yeah. What's the sweet spot for turnover for a business? Because presumably, obviously, once you get to the size of a large PLC, then they'll have plenty of assets and access to equity markets and all sorts of things. So no lender is going to require personal guarantees from those directors, but there must be a sweet spot where they're big enough to get the finance, but small enough to have to still give the personal guarantees. Do you find there's a number, you know, sort of range where you, you really operate well and where this product works the best? I think it's sort of a typical demographic for a policy holder. It's maybe a business that's approached probably 10 years. You tend to find that growth cycles for a business happen pretty much every five years once they go through the motion. So probably about 10 years. Typical turnover size, probably between two and a half and five million pounds. So that's sort of the, the key area, maybe sort of like a, a shareholder funds position of maybe sort of a million or more. That probably fits the key demographic. Interestingly, we have done probably one or two PLCs, but actually these are PLCs in the process of getting delisted. 
Yeah, but that's the sweet spot. I think probably the biggest company that we've ever looked at probably had a turnover of around about 350 million. I think they were just this tech company that was basically just involved in like the emerging world telecommunications. And they just had an unbelievable growth period, sort of 2018 to 2022. They went from about a million pounds worth of turnover to 350 million. I mean, the the guy just must have never slept. I don't know how he managed to do it. With the team that he had at his disposal. But yeah, he, he just seemed to like the sort of alternative finance, quick delivery of short-term working capital funding at his disposal. A lot of these decisions can be made inside of 24 hours and he kept plugging it in. But yeah, usually 10 years, about two and a half, five million turnover, about a million pound shareholder funds. And then again, just looking to go through that next growth cycle. And hopefully by the time they get through that next one, they might be at a size where they've got enough assets or enough on the balance sheet to do that. But, you know, lenders don't always request a personal guarantee purely as security for a loan. A lot of the time it's to ensure that the directors remain engaged if things don't go to brand. That full alignment, yeah. Exactly. Just make sure they take the line and they carry and conduct themselves properly if things don't quite go to plan. Obviously, you started 2016, 2017. I remember around that time, I was writing a huge amount about insure tech. And obviously, we're still writing about insure tech. We're slightly less excited about it these days. It's become more mainstream. Do you use a lot of technology in your business? You, know, you mentioned about that techie guy going from naught to 350 million in a couple of years. You know, you certainly started without a legacy tech operation. Presumably, you can use a lot of technology to help automate some of the things that you're doing. Yeah, I mean, our online application process, so you go to the website, get a quote. As part of that process, we've got a number of APIs that go to credit reference agencies. We're pulling data from companies' house and looking at key financial ratios, which again, are the kind of the tools for the devices to look at as part of that process. The system itself does have an ability to auto-quote things, which we used to do in the very early stage, but we actually found the propensity to someone to purchase outright from getting a quotation was quite low because there's not an awareness necessarily of how the product works and people want to clarify certain aspects of the policy. So that conversation with you know, underwriters is really key, not only from a risk assessment perspective, but also outlining the benefits of the policy, how it works, et cetera, as well. You know, whilst we've been trading for over six years now, getting some good underwriting data through, I think one of the challenges for us the next six years will be to get some of that intuition that insurers have getting that into some form of tech basis where we can actually do some of that heavy lifting from that perspective as well. And there are great technologies out there on the market and they all continue to develop as we move through the years. So we do have a tech capability built within the core system. But again, at the moment, as part of our learning blade, we're still looking at things to check that. One of the other bits where we have used some technology is actually on the claim side. So when we get a claim, there's a notification and perhaps as part of that process, on a turnkey basis, we're asking those directors to share open banking data with us and getting accounting APIs into this as well. So again, we can take a real-time look at how the business is trading, what's happening within there. And actually that helps to speed up the claims process as well, because we've got access to all the information before they've actually even made the claim. So in terms of processing, in terms of us going through our threshold tests and our procedures, that's certainly something that's, I believe, beneficial for the insured because we are asking for lots of PDF information. It's really just there that they've already given to us. So again, we can process that and that certainly enhanced that process. What about your own portfolio management? Obviously, there is a systemic risk to a business like this in that it's just a generalized economic recession. Presumably, of course, you can mitigate that because, of course, recessions, they don't hit all sectors all of the time. There's always one or two sectors that are doing fine when 
some of the other sectors aren't. How do you approach that kind of overall portfolio management to keep your paper providers happy? Well, there's a couple of things. So every time we get a customer that comes to us, we automatically are tracking those by our credit reference agency. So all applicants go into essentially one bucket. So each day we get an update if there's been a change in someone's left the board or there's new companies, new accounts have been filed or something adverse to CCJ. So we get access to that. And also for policyholders as well. So we're automatically looking at everything and getting notification of any changes. In terms of the broader macroeconomic indicators, I mean, we launched in June 2017 in the backdrop of Brexit. And then obviously we had the COVID pandemic and then we've had the cost of living crisis, inflation. Yeah, it hasn't been that easy, has it? <laughs> Non-stop hurdles, yeah. Yeah, I feel like Colin Jackson at some points. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think the approach, you know, we've taken that again, co-manufacturers, you know, with insurers is that we've tried to look on the horizon of what's happening. So reading the fiscal outlooks, et cetera, as well, seeing what's going on and speaking to people in the market as well as salty practitioners. So we're trying to be as best we can ahead of the curve on things that might happen, which cause a potential aggregation issues on the book. The book itself is actually quite reflective of UK SME generally. So it's well diversified. Yeah, it's well diversified. So if you put a, a knife through the composition of UK SME, it looked pretty similar to what our book looks oh, like. Good. So it's not it's only think, oh goodness, I'm, I'm in high street retail and um, yeah. you know hospitality. And I think, goodness, you know, with, with something like COVID, you think, oh dear, that's not good, is it? But obviously, if you're in more of those more professional services and everything else, there's so many other things, of course, that were just fine during the pandemic, weren't they? Any business where you could do it from a laptop was fine. And of course, the more hard logistical businesses were all fine as well, weren't they? Because we carried on eating our food and requiring materials, didn't we? Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose the biggest tool that we have in hedging, you know, as best we can for some of these macroeconomic events that are on the horizon or in the near term is just trying to be good at accepting risk, looking at it diligently, and also where we do have policy holder on cover and they've got issues is being proactive around trying to sort them through that process as well. Other than, you know, all the sort of theoretical things we can look at on the horizon and various reports and market commentators, et cetera, as well, it's also kind of making sure that we are diligent in what we're doing, selecting good risks and also servicing those clients well when they do have an issue. Yes, and suppose it's building that trusted relationship with them to know that they can come to you and help nip something in the bud before it becomes a real problem. Yeah, absolutely. I think the dialogue between claims and underwriting has also been clear. There's a, there's a lesson to be learned in, in every claim, and that's kind of every claim that we've taken on has helped to also evolve that underwriting process. So, yeah, that, that symbiotic relationship has been particularly key, even sort of learning stuff from notifications. It helps us build, you know, a better identifier profile of who are the clients that we need to be more wary of. You know, have they got multiple director appointments? Have they had previous insolvencies? Are they a business in this sector or that sector? COVID did actually help us kind of de-risk our book in a lot of ways as well. So with clients refinancing onto government back debt, which didn't carry personal guarantees, obviously it was a, a difficult time for us because we were losing premium, but also kind of necessarily for the longevity of the business as well, because perhaps if we'd hung on to a few more of those clients, I mean, everyone was kind of operating in suspended animation then. And obviously, yeah. I think now, obviously the insolvency rates, I think at the moment, tracking high since 2009. 
particularly within the construction sector. I think one in four is currently within this construction sector, which, which isn't unusual. I mean, obviously, being sort of tight margin and obviously dependent upon sort of expendable income, they always tend to feel the pain first from a recession. But yeah, you know, the pandemic was a very... Well, we've had... It feels like non-stop learning curve over the last six years. Yeah, but, absolutely. Um, well, I suppose it won't change, yeah. No, no, indeed. Yeah, it's got, it's got, we've got to keep learning. But uh, yeah, it was an important time and also quite an important stage of building stronger ties with our carrier as well. Because, you know, there were a lot of MGA during that period that you know were not quite so lucky in keeping their capacity so you know we definitely grew closer to the carrier so what sort of size business are you how many employees have you got and what sort of GWP are we looking at yeah, so it's been an interesting journey. I mean, we started on a pig farm that was converted into some office buildings about 15 years ago. At that time, it was just me, Dean, and Todd, who sort of works remotely from Ely, sort of popping over once a week. We didn't have proper comms cabling or anything like that as well. So it was kind of like, sorry, I just need to make a call, chaps. Do you mind not sending any emails for the next 10 or 15? So that's very much how it kind of continued for the first couple of years, obviously operating on a bit of a shoestring budget while we were trying to prove the concept. And it's sort of just grown from there. So obviously we've grown sort of into our own office space. We did sort of share with a mutual company from one of our directors for a bit, a bit of office space. And now we're up to 10 full-timers come a long way from that lonely first Christmas party in the art kitchen, just three blokes having a meal. But yeah, you know, what is a, a good, fun, sort of vibrant place to work? You know, a combination of quite a young team for the operations side of thing. And then we've got some, you know, nice claimed sages, a bit more long in the tooth, kind of going through the nuts and bolts of, uh, of what's happened on that end of things. In terms of GWP, we've, you know, since COVID, we've been on a, a very strong growth trajectory. I mean, Prior to COVID, that would have been probably coming into March. We were really sort of flying. You know, we probably would have finished in profit for the first time in three years, which was fantastic. Probably sort of getting towards the one and a half million mark. I'd say calendar sort of 12 months. We're now sort of writing around about sort of the 2.8 million, 2.75 to 2.8 million mark. Design's kind of grown on exponentially. So we we, we sort of aim for a 70% retention of renewal premiums each month. And then essentially a 25% growth on new business premiums written in the previous year. So we'd hope on that sort of particular model that, you know, over the next 12 months, as obviously correct me if I'm wrong, because, you know, Todd being the accountant of the two of us, he tends to be <laughs> the biggest chap. I'm just responsible for us <laughs> making sure we get to those figures. But yeah, you know, I, I think we're hoping for probably more towards the sort of the four or five million mark, maybe over the next sort of five, 18 months, I think. And hopefully on the current trajectory that we're on, we're seeing strong demand, you know, whenever there's sort of waves of uncertainty in the economy, people start to feel a bit more nervous. As long as we sort of continue to pick our risks well, it, the environment does sort of tend to play into our hands a little bit. Obviously, if things are going kind of peachy clean, people are less worried about this sort of thing. And, and presumably you're charging the premiums as they pay installments on their debt. You don't charge a massive upfront premium or how does it work? They have a choice. So premium rates vary from secured to unsecured debt. So secured debt premium rates start at 1.6% of the guarantee sum insured up to about 3%. Unsecured, they start at 24 up to about 4 maybe 5% if it's particularly racy. Insurance premium tax, 12% on charge. And then we charge an arrangement fee between 250 £250 to £1,000 per policy, just depending on what we need to do. So the arrangement fee is payable in full within 30 days. We allow a period just to, to get that paid in full full and the premium have a choice so the pay in full are paid monthly the monthly facility we offer is 10% fixed interest over 12 payments so do tend to pay a little bit more but I'd probably say like 90-95% of policy holders prefer to just spread the cost of the premium monthly with the you know the monthly repayments on the loan of the finance 
And what about your growth plans? I mean, well, for one, this is a very big market. I mean, and no one else is doing this as far as I'm aware. Certainly when I first met you, I don't think it was the case. This is a potentially global product with a very large total addressable market, would you say? What do you think that market size could be? As far as I'm aware, there's no central repository or database with the number of personal guarantees that are registered. So the only kind of estimations that we have are based on crude market kind of estimates. But we think if there are 2.1 limited companies and NLPs in the UK, say, you know, we believe about 40% of those are accessing external debt finance. And our own independent research that we've done is that typically personal guarantees are requested in about 40 percent of cases. So I guess if you do the maths to bring that down, we think there's potentially over half a million UK limited companies or NLPs with potential personal guarantees. And that's just, I suppose, in respect of personal guarantees attached to business finance. But one of the things that we've always felt is that the product that we have now is very much the anchor for Perfect. And through having quite a unique product, we have quite unique conversations with people that are looking for other derivations of personal guarantee insurance. So if you've got someone that's gone into an office and the commercial landlord's asking for a personal guarantee, or there's a trade credit personal guarantee or a performance bond personal guarantee that, you know, we've got a whole raft of other potential personal guarantee insurance opportunities that we could look to sort of move into. What about, again, other adjacencies? It'd be fairly obvious that, you know, if you've got a trusted relationship with the director, you could sell them DNO and you could also sell them MA insurance as well if they're looking to, you know, looking to sell. You know. So, again, you know, they're looking to secure those potential tax liabilities and other things. And of course, you're in prime position also to offer them the most vanilla content and everything else insurance for their business if it's a physical business. Do you have any plans to, to do that? We've always wanted to set ourselves up as personal guarantee insured experts and really kind of focus in on that. And it's not to say that we wouldn't ever do that. What's more likely is if we spot an opportunity for some of those other insurance policies that you just referenced, Mark, is we're probably more likely to refer them to someone that we know and trust will get a good service. Because at the moment, we probably do have the announced capability, but some of those, if they're quite unique, Again, it's probably at this stage more straightforward. You better for us to refer to someone that you know is exactly. going to be a good, good yeah. partner. Just I agree. I think we were keen to make sure that we got this right first. As Todd mentioned, there's so many different opportunities in terms of different variations of personal guarantees that we're still can't cover for. I think we're just keen to try and lock down this niche market first until a point where we've got it right. And then eventually look to branch out. I mean, we know there's complementary insurances and we're, we're in quite a unique position and we have quite a trusting, quite a sensitive conversation with the decision maker within the company. So it does put us in quite a unique position to plug in other products because, yeah. you know, that trust element is certainly there from an early date. And yeah, it would be nice to eventually become a bit of a, a one-stop shop for SME financial services needs, whether it be their entire insurance packages, if they're looking for finance, if they're looking for legal advice, so it'd be nice to sort of build that network. So certainly, I think on the horizon, I think probably the, the goal for probably the next three to five years, I would say, is to make sure we get the core PG insurance model locked down before we look to go into that one. It's a big world out there. Yeah, It doesn't seem to have personal guarantee insurance. Obviously, there, there must be lots of directors with personal guarantees all over the world. Any plans to go west and, and seek your fortune out in the wider world? Never say never. And, you know, the, the carrier that we're using, a global reach, you know, within that. So, again, I think it goes back to what Keir was saying around 
But there's lots of opportunity that we have in the UK and looking to optimize that, the opportunities in our reach within that. But certainly if we can take the learning, all the learning that we've done in the UK and apply that to an adjacent overseas jurisdiction, obviously we'd have to do some assessment on the suitability of it and regulation, all those sorts of things. But I think we would all have a very heightened interest to explore other territories as well to take this product over there. But we just at the moment want to optimise what we have here before looking at that so that we're not spreading ourselves too thinly as well. One last question. You're entrepreneurs. You've put this thing together. You've done something that no one else has ever done and should be really proud of what you've done so far. But what sort of entrepreneurs are you? I interview lots of people who've set up businesses. Um, some of them are the kind who are sort of quite restless and they like to do new things all the time. Once they've proven something, they're quite happy to sort of pass it on to someone else to do the more operational side of it they'll move on to some new idea that's caught their attention or some new problem that needs solving because that's what they love doing. Others are different. They want to keep going, say this is their lifetime's work. This will be something that has their name above the door. They will have this Perbeck brand will go on forever and the sort of thing they can hand on to their children and grandchildren. Say, this is my legacy. This is what I've built. What sort of entrepreneurs are you? It's an interesting question. We might be very different entrepreneurs, Tyler, who knows? <laughs> but yeah, do you, do you want to fire first and I'll follow up? Let me go. Yeah, it's one I've not really thought about too much. To be honest, I don't really necessarily consider myself as one. It's probably the obvious answer. I think, you know, we're in a fortunate position where Perbeck today has worked and it's enabled us to bring some really good people into the team. We've got a really good working environment. We enjoy everyone's company, that sort of thing. So I suppose that's very fortunate. One of the things I suppose is that looking back to 2016, there always used to be milestones. We used to think, well, as soon as we get our FCA authorization, it's going to be brilliant. We're really happy. But actually, when you reach that point, it's then the next milestone. I think, you know, it's a million pounds of GWP and it's two and a half million pounds of GWP. I suppose it's in a way, I'm not sure what level will ever be completely satisfied with where the business sort of grows to, if, if that makes sense. This has been a bootstrap business, hasn't it? He hasn't, yeah. it didn't, not as if you went to private equity from day one and said, right, I've got this great idea. You didn't do it that way, did you? No, very much no. You know, it's, it's self-funded. We, we have had some support down the line, but certainly not private equity and like that. I think probably one of the key things is that you know, I genuinely enjoy work, enjoy with the team. So it's not necessarily a tie to the business. It's just actually, I'm really interested to see what's going on. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. You're more of the latter, but not necessarily have to be taken out in a box at the yeah. end. But you'd, you'd seem very, very attached to this business because you built it up this way. Yeah. And, you know, and I think we're all proud of it as well. Yeah. We are proud of where we've come and what the future holds. What, what about you, Keir? I feel a lot the same as you. I don't necessarily feel as an entrepreneur directly. I feel almost like I'm riding the coattails a little bit of a, a few trailblazers. But, you know, it's, it's my, my dad, Dean, who came up with the idea. He's very much the former in that he loves the, the new idea and then he's, he's on to the next. He's a creative. He's not someone that likes to, to drive and see things through. I'm the sort of person that if I start a TV series, even if after two or three seasons, the quality drops off significantly, <laughs> I like to see it through. It's very much much the kind of the same thing for me. Hopefully the quality won't drop off with Perbeck. But yeah, I like to see something through to completion to look back and say, yes, I feel satisfied that that's a point that I walk away. But, but I mean, personally, I, I need diversity in my day just as much as anyone else does. So, you know, as long as we continue to sort of 
push the thresholds and sort of branch out into new ideas, new environments, you know, hopefully new marketplaces internationally, as long as it still gives me that flavor where I wake up and no two days are the same, then, you know, it's something that I can see myself kind of committing a, a lifetime through, you know, because there can be new creation, you know, within a current business. It doesn't necessarily have to be a new adventure each time, but completely agree with Todd that, you know, it's, it's, it's a wonderful working environment. We've built a really, really nice team and, you know, genuinely a place that I look forward to coming to every day which is, you know, quite unusual in the world of insurance. I was going to make some wisecrack about snouts in the trough, <laughs> you know, from your, your pig farm but the pig origins. Farm days, yeah. But, uh, but I, I won't. I, I won't. I'll just wish you all the best. Good economy, good financial stability within the economy for all those businesses uh, whose directors you are guaranteeing. You know, I interview all sorts of people on this show, but I think when I found out what you were getting up to, I thought it was it was something that not necessarily everyone's going to know about. And then part of the voice of insurance should be to showcase the sort of talent that we've got out there and some of the things that people are doing. So thank you so much for coming on telling us all about it. Thank you. Likewise. Thanks for having us, Mark. Appreciate it. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. Hold up. 